0: Hey, it's Aaron. A little word of warning. By now, you should know that first time long time uses grown-up language. And this episode, despite it being about summer camp, is no different. So you've been warned.
1: The one game that I remember from camp was called Tasmanian Tushy Ball.
0: That's Terry Wolfish Cole. She went to Camp B'nai B'rith in Ontario in the 70s
1: the counselor would underhand a red playground ball at you and you would take your forearm and with your forearm you would slap at that red rubber ball.
0: Tasmanian tushy ball was essentially kickball using your arm instead of your foot. But if you got a hit rather than run the bases normally,
1: you would run backwards, like literally backwards, looking over your shoulder to third base.
0: And that's the whole thing hit the ball with your arm, run the bases backwards. But the rules are not what made the game special.
1: If you got a strike, that was a fart. So it was like fart one, fart two, fart three. And then because it was Jewish camp, we didn't say you pooped, it was you cocked. (laughs) So fart one, fart two, fart three, you cocked.
0: That must have been incredibly subversive to your, your little ears.
1: In my house growing up, You were not allowed to say fart. For whatever reason, the word for a fart was a porky. Lisa made a porky. (laughs) So yes, getting to say fart was totally swearing. It was awesome. And
0: why was it called Tasmanian Tushy Ball? I don't know. (laughs)
1: Like it must have been some counselor was given a bunk of kids at the last minute And they were like go keep them busy you can have baseball field number 2 and a red rubber ball go make something up, and someone did?
0: I mean, I can picture it, right? He was up all night with Shira Weinstock, hoping to make out, it didn't work, he's kind of bummed, and he's like, he doesn't want to play kickball for the 15,000th time, and he's like, let's play this game, and somebody says, what's it called? And he says, I don't know, Tasmanian Tushy Ball, and that's it. For the rest of time, that camp will play that game.
1: I think that's how these things happen.
0: I think that's how it happens too, especially at summer camp. So, this is First Time, Long Time, a podcast that looks at how sports describe and shape the way we look at the world. I'm Aaron Wolfe. Do you remember the game we invented? And that's Jonah Kanner.
2: We invented a game where it was basically Ultimate Frisbee with a stick.
0: Yeah, oogie stick. Yeah, oogie stick. You throw a stick <laughs> at other people. We learned how to catch a flying <laughs> stick. Jonah and I grew up in a two-family house. We'd spend like whole afternoons playing Legos and imagination games, but Oogie Stick was a game we made up at camp. We'd gather in a field, we'd find a small log, and we'd throw it at each other for hours. Oogie Stick lasted about a week. Eventually someone's hand got hurt, or we got bored, or maybe a counselor said, hey, stop throwing sticks at each other. Either way, the game faded away, never to be played again. But for one brief period of time, Oogie Stick was the most important game in the world to us, despite its obvious idiocy. And summer camp is filled with games like that. Here's Terry again.
1: If you're me and you know exactly where on the back of my hand to look, you can see this faint, faint scarf. That is from the moment at camp where we sat on a lower bunk and some girl who had a fingernail scratched the same spot on my hand over and over until the skin broke and it started to bleed. And she kept going and it was like, how long can you stand it? And then eventually it heals and there's a scab and you pick off the scab and you have a scar.
0: That was not a punishment, right? That was like just an activity.
1: It was just a thing we did at camp. We weren't old enough to smoke or fuck. (laughs) So this is what we did at camp.
0: That's what we did at camp too. And today's episode is all about that exact thing, the games we played at summer camp. And in specific, the single greatest game ever invented in the history of the whole world. A game invented at my summer camp, Camp Shomria.
2: Can I tell you, I have a thought of how I want to start. Can I tell you a story?
0: Yeah, of course you can.
2: Okay, so when when I saw that you were doing this episode, the first thing that came to my mind was being a camper and walking from my bunk to the dining hall and seeing counselors walking out of the dining hall, each carrying a bench on their shoulders and knowing exactly what was going to happen and being beyond thrilled about it. Like that moment of knowing, this is it, we're playing. Like, boom, this is it. Someone's going to get hurt.
0: I have that same image in my head, and the minute Jonah brought it up, I knew exactly what he meant.
2: We're going to play Shvuggie Ball.
0: Okay, that's Alex Dubin. He was in Jonah's group at camp, and for the first, I don't know, three years of knowing him, I had no idea his first name was Alex. I mean, everyone, and I mean everyone calls him Dubin, even his wife. And Dubin's the perfect person to start us off, because the first thing you have to know about this game is that, like Dubin, it has a lot of different names. When we were kids, it was called Shvuggie Ball.
2: I didn't realize that it was offensive, that shogi ball was offensive, that it was a slur until, I mean, until I was an older camper. I don't know whether it's because nobody knew that, who was my age, or just because I was oblivious.
3: My kids came and told me that. Yeah, we still play that game. It's called shogi ball. I was like, what?
0: That's Ricky Friedman. He's credited with inventing the game.
3: In what language is Shvoogie racist? Brooke, how about Brooklyn Jewish? Because that's where I heard it. And it was a racist term for for black people? Absolutely, no doubt about it. Absolutely, no doubt about it.
0: When Ricky invented the game, it was simply known as Friedman Ball. But sometime along the way, it was renamed. And I have no idea how it became Shvoogie Ball. And to be honest, I could search and search. But ultimately, just like Terry's story, probably somebody one day just called it that. Either way, as soon as my generation realized that Shruggy was racist, it was swapped for a series of names.
2: Lucille Ball, Motsa
4: Ball. One year, Barry Weiner was really trying to name it Cinderella Can't Go to the Ball.
0: <laughs> That's Omri Navot, another camp guy. You'll hear more from him later. But the point is, of all the names, Lucille Ball is the one that stuck. And the other thing that you have to know about this game is that it was unbelievably dangerous.
2: I mean, it was the most dangerous thing that we did there. And we did a lot of dangerous things.
0: Take, for example, the game Zap. It's sort of a flashlight tag where you turn off all the lights and the campers have to get from one side of camp to the other. It's played all over the world. My wife Naomi went to camp 700 miles away from Shomriyat, and they played it too.
5: The way you get caught is if somebody shines a flashlight on you. And they say, zap, zap the schwatterbug, and then you have to go back to the beginning.
6: Zap, zap the schwatterbug.
0: What's the second word that you're saying?
6: Schwatterbug. That's what it was called, zap the schwatterbug. Why? Yeah, I don't know. I have no idea.
0: And as though running full speed through a pitch-black summer camp isn't scary enough, at Camp Shumriya even Zap had a more dangerous element. Rampant poison ivy, a mild-to-moderate fox infestation, a few randomly placed exposed metal pipes sheared off at precisely shin height. Oh, and by the way, there was always the distinct possibility that someone falls into a well. Literally. One summer, Yotam ran into an open well by the swimming pool. But look, everyone thinks their summer camp was totally crazy, so you don't have to take my word for it.
7: Have you seen the camp? It's a sorry sight. I mean, it looks like a like a prison camp.
0: That's Aiden. A few weeks ago, a bunch of camp people came over for an impromptu barbecue. And the conversation eventually and sort of inevitably turned to our wacky camp. Aiden didn't go to Shomria, but he's married to Alyssa, who did. The first time you went to camp, like, Alyssa was talking it up. She was like, this is this magical
7: place that I grew up in, and, like, I want you to come. And She talked up the the friendships that she made and the emotional sort of, I don't know, the sitting around and talking about feelings, and she never actually described the physical place. And so I, I imagine just, you know, a place that kids would love to be. You pull in, and what do you see? A dirt and grass field. Ten-year-old kids were stacked eight deep inside of a... 100-square-foot bunkhouse, like they were pulled out of some Eastern European prison camp. There's a pool that had leaves and mildew and, you know, animals swimming around inside of it. Oh, I I also remember, Alyssa talked about, like, going out to the lake or something. It looked like one of these, like, sewage retention ponds.
0: Okay, first of all, the lake is not a sewage retention pond. Those are on the other side of the road from the basketball courts. But, yeah, the lake is kind of a glorified puddle. And there's a good reason for that. The lake, like everything else at camp, was made by 19-year-olds. Camp Shomriyá is the summer camp of the Socialist Zionist Youth Movement Hashomer Tzair, a movement founded in the early 20th century dedicated to reclaiming the Jewish spirit through radical intimacy, socialism, kibbutz living, and uniting the Jewish proletariat with our cousins, the Palestinian proletariat. Together, as the story went, we transformed the spiritual home of the three major world religions into a socialist paradise, ushering in a new dawn of peace and equality for all of humanity. And we trained train for all that by surviving six weeks in a summer camp in the Catskills. And for the majority of Camp Shomriyaz's existence, that's sort of what it was, a training facility. You went to camp as a kid, and then the minute you turned 21, you kissed your parents goodbye and made your way to Palestine, or eventually to Israel, to join the revolution. So, yeah, Camp Shomriyaz is sort of rough around the edges.
3: I came up to Shomriyat from Kingston.
0: That's Ricky Friedman
3: again. When I was nine, almost ten, my parents more or less informed me that I was not going to play Little League Baseball anymore. I was going to be going to uh, this Zionist camp in the mountains.
0: Ricky, like me, was an early convert to the culture of Shomriyat. He learned how to lash rope, make fires, talk philosophy, you know, the sort of stuff a young revolutionary needs to know. And, like me, when he turned 18, he was sent to Israel for a year to work on kibbutz, learn Hebrew, and become a better leader for the movement.
3: had an actual class where they would teach you games that you could bring back.
0: It was in that class that Ricky learned a game that had elements of dodgeball, basketball, rugby, and soccer, and he really liked it.
3: So I brought it back, and uh, it really caught on. Give me an F. Give me a U. Give me a C. Give
0: me a K. That summer, Ricky was the head counselor. It was 1969. Fifteen miles away, Woodstock was in full swing. But at Camp Shomria, while the majority of the camp was stuck in endless conversations about whether they should participate in this monument to bourgeois excess, something else was happening.
3: Now I don't know if you know what happened during 1969, but it rained every single day. Hey, you think really hard, maybe we can stop this rain! Yeah. No rain! I'm not kidding. It, just, it didn't matter how the day started out it would rain. But the moment the sun would come out, people would run outside and they would stop playing this game.
0: I think it's not an exaggeration to say that that summer there were two revolutions. Woodstock marked the end of the hippie utopia, and at the same time, Friedman Ball ended the wholesome image of Camp Shomria. This game, this wild, violent, exciting game, began an era of upheaval in our little summer camp. As the rules that Ricky brought were shed and adapted, slowly a new game emerged. One that would define the darkest and craziest side to this socialist paradise. So, what the hell is this game anyway?
2: There are three teams.
0: That's Jonah again.
2: Each team has a goal that is made up of three benches in a triangle. And the goalie for your team would stand inside of your goal.
0: And that's Dubin again.
2: Unlike other games where you're trying to defend your goal, in in this game you're actually trying to get the ball to your goal.
0: Get the ball to your goalie, you earn a point for your team. To move the ball, you could throw it to a teammate, or if you wanted to run... You could dribble the ball, like basketball-style dribble. Sort of more like rugby than basketball.
2: Or you could dribble it soccer-style.
0: Kick the ball on the ground as you run. Or you could launch, kick it. Sort of a punt to your teammates. Oh, and by the way, there were two balls in play at all times. Three teams, three goals, two balls, with the entire camp playing. 150 out-of-shape socialist bodies running around chasing a ball at full speed, trying to get it to their goal. And that's it. That's the whole game. Except for one more simple rule.
2: You can tackle anyone who's bigger than you but you can't tackle anyone who's smaller than you.
0: And we're talking full rugby style, no holds barred flying tackles. You
2: had eight year olds playing with 20 year olds, and no one was taking it easy.
0: And what was incredible was when like 28 year olds would take down a 250 pound man. (laughs) (laughs)
2: <laughs> yes! That was amazing! Those were the best memories, and then, and then you would get hurt because they would fall on you, but it was the best memories. It was a game where literally every single time we played, literally someone who was like 12 or 13 would break their leg and have to go to the hospital, and that was just like, that was a part of the game, and somebody was going to go to the hospital, and who would it be?
0: There were so many ways to get hurt playing this game.
2: You could get elbowed in the face, which happened on the regular, you could have someone land on you and break your leg.
0: Oh my God. You could be running full throttle towards your goal and about four feet from your goal, you could get tackled from behind and crack your chin against the, the wooden bench. Oh yeah, absolutely. Ugh. What's sort of hard to communicate though is that it also is an incredible game. It's like as as close to a perfect game as you can imagine.
2: It's a beautiful game. It's like a great teamwork meets individual skill meets strategy game.
0: The game would start and all 150 kids would suddenly be running at full speed, moving as one, weaving around each other, sensing, attacking, defending. The middle of the field would be this full-on melee where speed and strength were all that mattered. But at the goals, it was all mind games. You had these strange, temporary alliances that were forged between mortal enemies, like Lannisters and Starks uniting to defend against some pubescent 12-year-old from Ronkonkoma. For example, teams were divided by geography. New York versus New Jersey versus Miscellaneous. If I'm on Team New Jersey and I'm defending the Miscellaneous goal, I'd be standing next to someone from New York doing the same thing. We're working together to prevent some Philly monster from getting the ball to his goalkeeper. But the second I succeed, the second the ball touches my hands, my ally is trying to tear me from limb to limb. So I run. I run as fast as I can, dribbling the ball, dragging a nine year old, searching wildly through the crowd for someone, anyone who lives near Fairlawn or Tenafly, and there's Boaz. Boaz, I can throw it to Boaz. And here, here is the masterful part of this game. Here is why it's perfect, why nothing has ever and will ever come close. I'm exhausted. My lungs are screaming, my legs are jelly, I'm probably bleeding a little. So I sit down on the sidelines, where the rest of camp is sitting, playing Grateful Dead songs and drinking iced coffee. And I fall into the lap of someone I have a crush on, and she hands me a picture of something sweet, and the game continues while I try not to vomit and also try to look cool. And we chat and laugh, and someone asks whether I'm going to the Vonnegut Club today after lunch, and I say yes because we're reading Harrison Bergeron and don't you think it's sort of ironic that we preach equality but read such a dystopic take on what socialism could actually require of us? And anyway, Gael's probably gonna be there, so I'm definitely going. And then New York scores. And Joan is running nearby, about to be tackled. So I leap up and he throws it to me and I'm back in. And that's what makes it amazing. It's a game where for three hours, 150 kids can be playing or not playing at all times and at any time. And the game is utterly unaffected by you dropping in or out. It's fluid and flexible and dangerous and exhilarating. And as I was talking about it with Jonah, in the same way that I'm talking about it with you, I had a realization. The kind of realization that's so simple, that the minute you say it, you feel stupid for having not realized it before. But that's the thing with summer camp, right? You exist in a bubble. And the bubble protects you from the outside world, but it also protects you from seeing things inside the bubble as they really are. Here's something that's interesting. The first thought I have about Lucille Ball is that it was amazing and crazy. The second thought it was dangerous. And then the third thought is like, God... it was also, like, kind of problematic. I had this memory of the girls all sitting in the shade watching. For the most part, it was this incredibly male, aggressive game. And part of the fun was you knew that the girls were all sitting and watching. And for, like, a socialist, egalitarian place, to just turn a total blind eye to that strikes me as sort of problematic.
2: Yes. There was, like, quite a bit of the the patriarchy showing up.
0: I just just really wonder that image that you have of, like, the counselors pulling the the benches out of the dining hall, what that meant to the women at, at camp, if that was just a total drag, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I should, I should ask some of the women at camp. Yeah. Yeah. Hi! Hi, Liv. That's Libby Linkinski. I've known her since we were both kids. We were campers together, counselors together, and full disclosure, we dated for a while.
5: dad decided that this year... Libby's kind of the perfect person to talk about this. For For one, she knows me really Um, well
0: and is pretty quick to point out when I'm being dumb about something. But also, she happens to be the head of the board of Camp Shomriya. I called her to weigh in in on on what Lucille Ball might have meant to the women at camp.
5: (laughs) 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 Mm. That's such an interesting question, because like, when you said that you were doing this, I first thought, oh my gosh, that was the most fun afternoon of the whole summer. And then I like kind of did my own feminist gut check about it, and and was like, wait a second, was it? And it's funny that you remember, like, the girls sitting on the side and watching. That's that's not what I remember, but I do remember. You had two choices. Either you could be, like, really, really good at playing the game. And then the other option is that you could be, like, on the tongue-in-cheek side. What you couldn't do, or what I was really conscious of not doing, is, like, looking like I was trying really hard to be good and failing at doing that. So I think when I played, I was sort of veering on the side of like whatever antics were happening within the game, like people darting off to the side to get attention or flashing the boys and like other things like that. It was a complex situation for like a tween girl.
0: Yeah, that's the thing. In my memory of Lucille Ball and kind of all of Camp Shomria, girls could either play hard and be as tough as the boys, or be silly and maybe sort of sexy, or they could sit it out. And I don't know, boys did that stuff too when we were kids, exploring the boundaries of acceptability, and maybe I'm just reading too, too much into this because I have a daughter now and the whole thing just freaks me out. But thinking about it, I can't help but remember a story that Terry told me about her camp in Ontario.
1: Periodically, we would have what they called a sneak-out. After lights out, you put on your lip gloss, you know, your Maybelline kissing slicks, and you got together in like the boathouse. And we would play spin the bottle, and I remember the counselors watching us. Like there was a rule about how long you had to kiss, but we were 11, kissing meant touching your lips to the other person's lips and like counting to 10 while they were in contact, you know? (laughs) What should have been exciting about this whole sneak out deal was just sort of more mortification because it was totally clear that whatever boy was spinning the bottle, he wasn't looking my way and going, oh, I hope it's her. He was looking my way going, please, no, please, no, please, no. And in my heart, I was probably also going, please, no, please, no, please, no, because I was just way too young and it was scary, not fun.
0: Right. But I wonder if you look fondly with a lens of nostalgia at it.
1: You know, I don't really.
5: I mean, there were all sorts of implicit and explicit pressures around hetero sex, which were extremely intense, extremely intense in retrospect and in real time as they were happening. I mean, so much of camp culture is, for me, it was like the strongest culture that I've ever experienced to this day. So it's like hard to imagine how you could grow up in that and not just fully internalize all of it, which I think many of us did. And that included gender norms, everything about sexuality. I mean,
0: there was not a gay or out member of the camp the entire time we were kids there.
5: Right, 100%, 100% and, and more.
0: We talked about it at camp, we wondered, we led activities about sexuality and gender. But for some reason, in this place that made me feel freer than anywhere else on earth, We couldn't make space for someone that was gay to feel comfortable enough, safe enough, to come out. And maybe it was that sort of toxic masculine energy that allowed for a game like Lucille Ball to exist. Or maybe it was just the old fashioned roots of the place. That old world kibbutz mentality of boys will be boys and girls will be girls. Or maybe it was just the 90s and we've come a long way since then in camp and in society. But the image of Camp Shumriya was getting darker and darker in my head. So I called Omri. Let's talk to the gay guy about Shogi Bob. No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, let's do it. Omri was a little younger than Jonah and Libby, and as a kid, he was like this fixture at camp. He was, to me, literally the embodiment of young, bright, open-hearted socialist. We had all these like
4: amazing like microculture sports, like that bar ball where we would oh, throw yeah. it on the soccer, oh my God. soccer goal. And,
0: Listening back to this conversation, it strikes me it. how easily Omri and I slip right into reminiscent mode.
4: When I was like 10, 11, 12, we were playing so much ping pong. Yeah. And guys were they were like slamming their cock and balls down on the ping pong table and playing with their cock and balls out. <laughs> That's probably the first time I saw, like, a old penis, like a hairy cock and balls.
0: Which is an appropriate place to see an old hairy cock and balls is four feet from the bug juice container. <laughs> at right. camp. Uh. So let me ask you. Let me ask you this. Is, is this image that I have of this pl- of the place, this emerging problematic image that I've been kind of coping with and dealing with did
4: that exist? Oh, that was absolutely a, a feature of the place. and to be fair, there were there were a good number of years when we were having discussions around like who are who are the superstars at Mosh?
0: Oh one other thing. Omri refers to Shomriya by one of its nicknames, Mosh. Short for Mosheva or Village.
4: Who are the superstars at Moshe? And why are they all men? And why why are men allowed to occupy so much more space and to have such a bigger voice? Yeah. And I benefited from that privilege, even though I was gay. And I think towards the end of my time, I even knew that I was benefiting from male privilege. And And took it greedily. Definitely.
0: Me too. Yeah. Me too.
4: What do you do with that? Uh, Have a little bit of regret and take a learning experience from it and apply it forward into my life and uh, pay better attention next time and have compassion for myself because I was a child and know that as an adult i don't want to conduct myself that way yeah and then at the same time i i did suffer from being in a heteronormative environment and that that was definitely hard at times there were times when i was hanging out with the guys and hooking up with girls and at least trying to pass off as a bro, even though I'm sure I did a terrible job at that. And towards the end, there are times when I was out and pretty much shut my sexuality off completely because that wasn't an option in that world. Yeah, I mean, my memories of the place are definitely mixed. Like, I don't know if I would send my child there. I would definitely want to do research on like, has, has it changed? They, they might have a... A beautiful growth experience and they, they most likely will have a beautiful growth experience and learn about themselves and self-realize and self-actualize and be many many years ahead of their peers on the other hand yeah you could get bruised there and I think most of us did
0: I mean the pleasure that I derived at the beginning of this Conversation and talking to you about these crazy games that we played and the nostalgia, the like wonder of youth and freedom. It's so alluring. It's so wonderful. Um, to hold them both, to hold the pain and the beauty, is really hard and obviously an imperative. Yeah.
5: you could find yourself completely hip-checked by some counselor six years older than you who just, like, was so in the Lucille ballgame, or because you were on the sidelines, you know, involved in a really inappropriate sexual relationship with someone.
0: It's hard to hear things that lie beneath the comfort of nostalgia. But in truth, with nostalgia, there's always a darkness if you're willing to look for it. By the time I ran the camp in the mid-2000s, we were addressing this darkness head-on, But that's kind of the uncomfortable thing for me, because I guess that means that I knew all along. I just didn't include it in my narrative of the place. So now I have to sit with that and hold it and listen to it and live with it and kind of honor that darkness. Because what else is there to do?
5: I brought my husband, Isaac, to camp this last summer and... Jonah was saying to him, don't judge us because we know it's like not fancy and it's like not that well kept and everything. And and Isaac was like, you know, it's like a blank canvas.
6: I do remember that when we got to the top of the gravel road. That's Isaac,
0: Libby's husband, my friend and a psychoanalyst.
6: I remember looking out at this space and thinking, this is a place where I could get some work done. This is a place where art could be created. This is a place where actually something from the kind of wretched depths of humanity could come up and have a voice. one of Plato's Republic which is where there's Cephalus, this kind of authority figure and one of the first things that happens in the Republic is that Cephalus leaves and the head of the state, the authority, the head of the household the sort of paternal figure is gone and finally dialogue can ensue. There's sort of two ways that a headless, parentless, or authorityless uh, group goes, right? It, I mean, one fear is that it goes towards the mob and there's scapegoats, and you you get a kind of Lord of the Flies situation. The other alternative is that with the absence of authority, people come together and they begin to dream. At Shomriya, something happens where the censor is removed and uh, what has resulted is the capacity to dream it's the capacity to imagine the ability to envision something different and if there's a name for utopia it would be the capacity or the ability to dream i mean that's part of the magic of camp
2: right like camp is a place where you're making up the rules, whether it's in life or in games.
0: And you don't always get it right. Maybe most of the time you don't. But at camp, unlike most places, it's kids that are trying to figure it out for each other.
2: There is something deeply flawed and wrong in the way that civilization has been constructed. When you go to camp, It is a window into what it looks like when we are living how humans can live. And we are suddenly somewhere else, somewhere where fun is what it's about, somewhere where relationship and community and singing and dancing and playing and being outside and navigating some of the hard things, right? Like, we're talking about people getting injured and, like, breaking their legs. We're talking about some... We're talking about lots of emotional scarring that's happening in these camps. But, like, for better and for worse, for positive experience, for negative experience, for falling in love, for heartbreak, all of those things that happen there, they are heightened in a way that is special, that is... in some senses.
0: As you were describing camp in general, you were describing a sporting event. It exists outside of normal time. Everybody is focused and organized around one singular thing or a new thing, a thing outside of the bounds of normal life. There's singing, there's dancing, there's expression outside of the norms. Hmm. And it's not really positive all the time, you lose, people get hurt, Mm. uh, people fail, and then you go home.
5: That's the real thing about the place. Somehow this blank canvas and and the sort of unsupervised free-for-all that happens in Lucille Ball and is kind of a microcosm for the larger experience also sets up like who we are in our lives and also the relationships that we you know that we hold on to forever
0: which brings us back to this game lucille ball a game completely invented by the camp introduced by ricky friedman as one thing slowly evolving into something else until its name its rules its basic makeup is barely recognizable from the original and it happens because of the same machinery that allows for incredible joy and incredible pain the machinery of youth the freedom to explore, to make mistakes, to accidentally hurt each other, to hope that in the end we get up, hold each other, heal each other, learn from our mistakes so that we can be better, so that we can grow up. There's one more thing I want to say, and I'm sort of embarrassed that I didn't think of it sooner. I played this episode for Jonah to sort of make sure that I hadn't missed anything. And he pointed out that despite all of my introspection and hand-wringing over my past behavior, this episode still only had one female voice in it, other than my wife's for a moment. And I thought about rectifying it. I thought about going out and interviewing a few more women, but then I thought that that would also just be whitewashing the problem. But if I'm ever going to really be right with this, I'm going to have to admit when I make a mistake and not just try to fix it all the time. So I'm sorry. And I'll do better next time. Today you heard some incredible music on the podcast And right now you're listening to one of my favorite things on earth It's ukulele covers by Corrine Keithley You can find them on fancystitchmachine.org I'll put a link in the episode notes She does these incredible covers of songs that you love or may not know yet And she sings them in this kind of haunting, high-pitched, strange and beautiful way I'll also include a link to some of my favorites, including a cover of Thunder Road by Bruce Springsteen that brings tears to my eyes. I really, really can't recommend it highly enough. You can find me on Twitter at Aaron Wolf, and you can go over to firsttimelongtime.am to find out more about the show and drop me a line. I love hearing from you. Please subscribe to us on your favorite podcatching software. I recommend Radio Public. It not only catches all your favorite podcasts, but it also recommends new ones and gives you curated lists of some of the best stuff out there. And there's a lot out there. That's it for this episode. As a sign-off, here's two minutes of Terry Wolfish Cole trying to get her dog to come inside. It's honestly some of my favorite tape I've ever recorded. Thanks for listening.
1: Oh, shit. Erin, I have to put you on hold for one second. It's raining and the dog's outside. No problem. Hold, hold on. Jimmy! Jimmy, come on! Jimmy, come on! come on. on! Where are you? of too stupid to come in out of the rain. <laughs> well, because there's a front door and there's a back door, and half the time if you call him in from the front door, he goes to the back door. And if you call him in from the back door, he goes to the front door. <laughs> you have to run back and forth through the house. Like, <laughs> dog, come in out of the rain, you stupid thing. <laughs> He's touching darling, Aaron, but brains, it's just not his strong suit.